0: Listen to the wind. I should hardly think he'd come tonight. That's the worst of living so far out. Of all the beastly, slushy, out of the way places to live in, this is the worst. Man entered. Sergeant Major Morris, said Mr. White, introducing him to his wife and his son Herbert. The little family gathered chairs by the fire, regarding with eager interest this visitor from distant parts who spoke of wild deeds, of wars and plagues and strange people. I'd like to go to India myself, the old man spoke. Better where you are, replied Sergeant Major, Morris. I should like to see those old temples and fakirs and jugglers. What was that you started telling me the other day about a monkey's paw or something, Morris? Well, it's just a bit of what you might call magic, perhaps. To look at it, he said, fumbling in his pocket, it's just an ordinary little paw dried to a mummy. But it has a spell put on it by an old fakir. A very holy man. He wanted to show that fate ruled people's lives. And that those who interfered with it did so to their own sorrow. He put a spell on it so that three separate men could each have three wishes from it. Well, why don't you have three, sir? I have. And did you really have the three wishes granted? I did. And has anybody else wished? The first man had his three wishes. I don't know what the first two were. But the third was for death. That's how I got the paw. If you could have another three wishes, would you have them? I don't know. He took the paw and, dangling it between his forefinger and thumb, suddenly threw it upon the fire. White, with a slight cry, stooped down and snatched it off. If you don't want it, Morris, give it to me. No, I threw it on the fire. If you keep it, it's your own doing. Don't blame me for what happens. Mr. White shook his head and examined his new possession closely. How do you do it? How do you wish with it? Hold it up in your right hand and wish aloud, but I warn you, only evil will come of it. I must be off now. But remember, if you must wish, wish for something sensible. Mr. White held the paw in his right hand. I don't know what to wish for. It seems to me I've got all I want. If you only cleared the mortgage on the house, you'd be quite happy. Well, wish for two hundred dollars then. That'll just do it, said Herbert. His father held up the talisman as the son sat down at the piano and struck a few impressive chords. I wish for two hundred dollars. A fine crash from the piano greeted the words, interrupted by a shuddering cry from the old man his wife and son ran toward him. It moved. I wished, and it twisted in my hand like a snake. Well, I don't see the money. It must have been your imagination, father, replied his son. The old man shivered, as if it were cold. Even after his wife and son went off to bed, he sat alone in the darkness, gazing at the dying fire, and seeing faces in it, the last face was so horrible, and so simian. And he gazed at it in amazement. His hand grasped the monkey's paw, then he put it down. And with a little shiver, he wiped his hand on his coat and went up to bed. In the brightness of the wintry sun next morning, as it streamed, over the breakfast table. He laughed at his fears. Well, don't spend those $200 before I come back, said Herbert as he rose from the table to go to work. That monkey's paw may turn you into a mean, avaricious man, and we shall have to disown you. He laughed, and his mother laughed, and following him to the door, watched him down the road. Herbert will have some more of his funny remarks, I expect, when he comes home. I dare say, but for all that, the thing moved in my hand. That, I'll swear to you. You thought it did. The old man and his wife argued about it all morning. I say it did. I had just... What's the matter? His wife made no reply. She was watching the mysterious movements of a man outside who was looking at the house in an undecided fashion. He paused at the gate, and then with sudden resolution flung it open and walked up the path. Mrs. White brought the stranger who seemed ill at ease into the room. I was asked to call. I come from the factory. Is anything the matter? Has anything happened to Herbert? I'm sorry. Is he hurt? badly hurt. But he's not in any pain. Oh, thank God. Thank God for that. Thank... She broke off suddenly as the sinister meaning of the assurance dawned upon her. And she saw the awful confirmation of her fears in the other's averted face. He was caught in the machinery. Mr. White stared blankly out of the window and taking his wife's hand between his own arrested as he had been wont to do in their old courting days, nearly 40 years before. He was the only one left to us. It's hard to believe he's dead. The factory wished me to convey their sincere sympathy with you in your loss. I was to say that they admit no liability at all, but in consideration of your son's services, they wish to present you with a certain sum as compensation. Mr. White gazed with horror. How much? Two hundred dollars.
1: A week had passed
0: since the old people had buried their son. Mr. White dozed fitfully until a sudden wild cry from his wife awoke him with a start. The poor, the monkey's poor. Where, where is it? What's the matter? I only just thought of it. Why didn't I think of it before? Think of what? The other two wishes. We only had one. Get it, get it quickly. And wish, oh my boy, my boy. But he has been dead ten days, and besides, he... I could not tell you, but after the accident, I could recognize him only by his clothing. If he was too terrible for you to see then, how now? Bring him back. Do you think I fear the child I've nursed? Wish! Wish! He raised his hand and held the monkey's paw. I wish my son alive again. What's that? It's Herbert. Let go. I must open the door. For God's sake, don't let it in. You're afraid of your own son. Let me go. I'm coming, Herbert. I'm coming. The old woman with a sudden wrench broke free and ran from the room. Her husband followed to the landing and called after appealing to her to stop as she hurried downstairs. He heard the door chain rattle back and the bottom bolt drawn slowly and stiffly from the socket. He was on his hands and knees groping wildly on the floor in search of the monkey's paw. If he could only find it before the thing outside that had been his son got in. He heard the creaking of the bolt as it came slowly back. And at the same moment found the monkey's paw and frantically breathed his third and last wish. Street lamp flickering opposite shone upon a quiet and deserted road. <laughs>
2: Of mystery that's roaming through the land. Far and near you hear of him, he's found on every hand. Every city, town, and village knows of him by now. There's a way to recognize him, let me tell you how. Now, if your path at midnight dark by a graveyard goes and someone whistles, why, that's mysterious bows or on some dark and stormy night while the tempest blows if someone whistles that's mysterious Mose he sees all knows all he gets in everywhere now some night he might wait for you upon the stairs so when you're going down the cellar walk upon your toes and if someone whistles that's mysterious mode! <laughs> Okay. Yeah. by the peep, peep, peep of a flute from down below. If someone whistles, why, that's mysterious, mose. Now, if at dawn of an early morn, a trumpet softly blows, if someone whistles, that's mysterious, mose. He sees all, knows all, perhaps a clarinet or bass horn or anything that he can get. He plays on every instrument, but there's just one tune he knows. When someone whistles, That's Mysterious Moe.
3: Welcome back to the Closet of Terror. And that means it must be time for a good discussion about the great American horror hosts. I can't imagine a childhood without these horror
4: masters of ceremony. They ashered in my love anyway of horror and weird comedy bits.
5: Well, it's a good thing, Frank, because nobody has to imagine a childhood without them. Because they're still here. Maybe not as many, but they're all just as vibrant as the ones we grew up with.
4: Tonight, we won't be able to cover all of the great ones. Uh, Igor's Chamber of Horror lists uh, about 300, so we can't
3: master that much. So we'll narrow it down to some of our favorites and let them be representative of these great men and women. We're going to start at the beginning tonight
4: with Vampyra, the queen of them all. There were horror hosts on the radio like The Whistler and Raymond uh, from Inner Sanctum, but the first television host of horror was Vampyra. She was on television for fifty four to fifty five. It was very short. Um, She was well. They I don't even know if they were looking for any kind of a thing like she did for the show, but um, she went to a costume contest dressed as uh, oh shoot, what's her name? the The Adams family woman. Oh, Morticia. Is it Morticia? Yeah. Yeah. Well, she came as Morticia Adams only a little more sexy and she got spotted and discovered and somehow they got turned her into a horror host and the her was she was the perfect prototype for all the ones to come she would come downstairs screaming and then she would sit down and tell the audience that it was great for her it was good for her health to do a little screaming there was all the jokes there was all the um, just the whole format but unfortunately Um, the company, the television station that was doing vampire, and it was here in L.A., Los Angeles, they wanted to own all the rights to the character, and she had sort of invented it. And she wouldn't give them up. And so they fired her. And that was it. And that was the end of the first horror host, good old Vampira. It it wasn't quite the same as the ones that came later as far as content. The Vampira show had some horror movies, but mostly they showed low-budget suspense films because there weren't that many horror films that had been syndicated to television yet. And that all changed in 1957. And that's when Screen Gems, they released a bundle of universal horror movies uh, to syndicated TV. And uh, because of Vampyra's notoriety, because even though she was only in L.A., uh, she ended up on magazines and on different talk shows, so people around the country knew about her. And so when they sent out these bundles, which they called Shock, they would always tell the people, you should have a horror host for these shows. And that's why a lot of the early TV shows, they were called Shock Theater. And Shock was so popular that they released a bundle called Son of Shock in 1958 and then another one in the early 60s called Creature Features. And um, they had even more uh, unreleased TV movies and then in the 70s they started releasing films of the Godzilla movies and the science fiction and the Hammer films and uh, finally the Night of the Living Dead they added and that really uh, wound things up with all these shows came horror hosts every uh, big network or local affiliate had their own whole horror host. some of the earlier ones became um, more famous, but most of them were just local. And we're going to start with... Um, I'm not sure if he's the very first one of these horror bundle horror hosts, but if he's not, he's one of them. And James is going to talk about this man right now.
5: And his name is uh, John Zachary, uh, And his, uh, his alias was The Cool Ghoul. Um, and he played a character called Roland. And everybody, uh, everybody knew him by that. And his, de- his debut was in uh, October 7th, 1957. And he did what Frank was talking about, which is the Shock Theater. They all packaged it like that. Uh, hey, this is the Shock Theater. So as we talk about certain things, all the early, on, early ones, the, the theater was called Shock Theater that, that I saw. Okay. Um, and so he started in Philly, and he, he made up a character named Roland. And it's funny because he was in a television show uh, for a little while, that was a western. That was that was just a western that they created for the Philadelphia affiliate, and uh, he played an Undertaker. And then that, uh, <laughs> so then his role in character was was a little bit more of that Undertaker, uh, you know, with makeup and whatever. You know, the Undertaker was like a regular guy in the in the western, but uh, then he wore the same kind of get up but then had makeup on or whatever. So this was his his thing, and and you know. He came up with a lot of the uh, bits that are now familiar to us all. His his first show was was uh, the uh, Shock Theater, and in 1959 he went to New York and he changed the show to Zachary at Large, but oh, he still played the role. in... that's why and, we know
4: his name so much.
5: And uh, he he would do stuff like he had a sack, a burlap sack, that was uh, hanging up in the in in his in his stage, and he would talk back and forth with them. And that was his co-star. Was his was this <laughs> was, sack like of, was like a mutilated victim or something? <laughs> and even and his bit was he would talk and he goes, "What's that?" And he would repeat like, "What's that?" Uh, you say that uh, that uh, oh the 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 meat needs or the stew needs more meat or you know that kind of thing, and uh, he would talk back and forth to to the uh, to the audience and say what was in the bag, and he and he also uh, was the first one to have actual conversations with the movies as they were going so it was kind of like mystery science theater
4: you mean he'd heckle them or what he do just no. so he,
5: he would forget about everybody else in the thing but he would make up dialogue with the monsters and he would just talk to them
4: and they would you mean he'd rig it so they'd answer something and it would look yeah like yeah talking? right so
5: it was like a pretty thing you'd have something funny and he goes what was that uh then they would say a line or whatever <laughs> he'd get you know excited so Zachary, like I said, started in 1957 in Philadelphia and then moved to New York in 59. And then he had, uh, a he ended his show in 60. But there was always, uh, he had a bunch of like one-off specials that he did. And then he also played in movies and and, and uh, ended up on the radio uh, as a DJ at the very end of his, his gig. It's kind of funny. But yeah, he ended up on the radio. And uh, yeah, you know, what's kind of interesting is that that, uh, John Zachary, he was friends with, with uh, uh, Dick Clark, and and uh, he had him actually do the song "Dinner with Drack. He's oh, like, oh, so you should do, you should do, uh, you should do a song. So, uh, you know, he did it. He did one. It was a novelty song, "Dinner with Drack, and he sent it over to Dick, and he, he said, oh. Uh, yeah, that's too gory. So he ended up doing it like a slightly less gory one, and but they ended up on the same forty-five. One was the clean, yeah. the uh, clean version, or like the know. less scary one. I don't the... know which
4: one I've heard because yeah. I, I, I uh, included that in the Doctor Demento uh, shindig stuff I <laughs> sent you guys.
6: house by the sea the orders were fine but I choked on my wine when I learned that the main course was me a vampire named perkins was so very fond of small gherkins while she served the tea she ate 43 which pickled her internal workers The scalpels go on the left with the pitchforks. Igor, Igor. What a swimmer is Dracula's daughter, but her pool looks more red than the daughter. The blood stains the boat, but it's easy to float, cause blood is much thicker than water. old friend. How are things in Transylvania?
5: <laughs> and uh, he, he actually, like I said, did a bunch of stuff where he would come come down the stairs, get out of a coffin, do all everything you could see that is a war host. So he had he, a he bunch a of different of stuff. stuff. yeah And uh, yeah, he's, he's a fun character. Uh,
4: well, the, the next one we'll talk about, I, I'm going to talk about, is Dr. Shock. And that's because he's the one who took Zachary's place in Philadelphia. He, um, was a magician. I don't know if you could call him a professional magician, but he did charge money for it. And, uh, he would do Zachary in his act as doing Halloween shows for kids and that he'd do the makeup and everything. And so when, um, he heard that, uh, you know, everyone heard that Roland was leaving and he was in a barbershop one time, and the, the head of the television station was in there, the programming, and complaining, like, yeah, oh, we got to find a new guy. And immediately, he grabbed a cigar from somebody, took the ash, and he did the makeup on his face, and he went into the whole bit. And the guy was really impressed, so he gave him a, a screen test. And, you know, he passed the screen test, so they gave him 13 episodes and that's where it all went to hell because he uh, started doing magic tricks in the middle of the show <laughs> and just added it always to it. And he um, he always went over and he never stuck to any script. And so they canceled him. And then they got all kinds of cards and letters and stuff. And they said, oh, okay. So he came back to where he belonged, late night television. And then eventually they brought him uh, into the daytime television. Um In the afternoons, and when they did that, they um, they brought his daughter on. He would just have his daughter. He would come out of a coffin always, and there was this little girl in one of those wheeled high chairs that just was looking around, not paying attention to nothing, wasn't scared, wasn't interested even. And he'd call her Bubbles, and he'd like, "Hey, Bubbles, how's it going?" Uh, You know, and just it might as well have been that sack because the kid (laughs) didn't react at all. Um, it, It was really entertaining i mean we'll show you right now here's here's some clips of this stuff and and uh one of the songs eat your heart out baby that uh i don't know if it's a local favorite or got nationwide but anyway i want you to
7: observe
0: two cylinders a third cylinder perfectly empty nothing at all inside watch are you ready for this one two a magic pass you like that, Magic Pass?
6: <laughs> and, of course, a piece of rope. A piece of rope. I'm going to do a fantastic rope trick with a piece of rope. Yes, I will. Fantastic rope trick with a piece of rope. <laughs> Any minute now,
7: I'm going to do this fantastic trick with this piece of rope.
6: <laughs> Any moment now, gang, just keep your eyes on the magical hands of Dr. Shock.
7: You and Ivan uh, better go take your bloodbath now, because you've been invited to a real cool party. Dr. Shot is throwing a party. <laughs> eat your heart out, baby. Eat your heart out, heart. Yeah, eat your heart out. ghouls to the graveyard last night to have ourselves a real cool party. The stars were out and the moon was shining bright when guess who threw in? Igor and Vampire Marty. They had just gone to Dracula's castle to tell him that he was on the party list. He's going to bring the creature with a thousand links. I hope everybody gets a kick out of this. <laughs>
4: So you can see from that, uh, you know, the magic tricks and the different stuff. That's what made him interesting and different than, uh, well, I don't think there was another uh, uh, horror host uh, that had, you know, magic in the middle of his act.
3: Illusions, Frank.
4: Oh, yes, illusions and delusions. He became popular, too, because he did a lot of charities. And he was from 1970 to 1979. So he had uh, quite a run. And anyway, I love old Doctor Shock and Greg. So we're gonna
3: go with the really the first horror host I was ever aware of. This this one I'm I have to admit I have a little crush on the beautiful Elvira, and she was inspired by the Vampire. In fact, I don't know if this is true because uh, you know, like Abraham Lincoln said, you can't always believe everything you read on the internet. <laughs> but uh, I read that. Uh, Vampira actually sued Elvira. Oh no, for that's a true. a breach of, yeah. okay, well there you go, there you have. Anytime it. there's a lawsuit, that's true. <laughs> so she was played by the beautiful Cassandra Peterson. Elvira's the host of Elvira's Movie Macabre. She was a vegetarian, but she said to eat dairy and fish and chicken now. As a teenager, Elvira or Cassandra worked as a go-go dancer in a gay bar. And then she actually briefly dated Elvis Presley. She she worked in Vegas and met Elvis Presley. Little known fact, uh, Peterson also auditioned for the role of Ginger Grant on the third Gilligan's Island television movie in 1981. Oh. <laughs> she would have been great. Did she have the horror host? Was she in there yet? Did she have her horror show yet, or was this before that? The Elvira character at that point wasn't really big, I, I think. I don't even know if she, oh, she had okay. it at that point. The... Uh, she did a movie in 1988, The Elvira Mistress of the Dark, which was a fun one. And uh, the in the movie, I don't want to give away too many spoilers, but she inherits some things from her aunt who passed away. And one thing is this kind of creepy looking mansion. And that actually was also used in the Munster TV show. And a lot of the people that she worked with on that film, she, she was... Uh, Involved in the Grandlings early on, and so a lot of her Grandling uh, oh. cast members were involved in that. And that's also how she came to be in Pee Wee's Big Adventure. She knew Paul Rubens from that, and so she has okay. that small little bit part. She's marvelous. Nice. In
5: it. What part uh, is it?
3: Are you joking? <laughs> yeah, that's our listening audience. She's the. Uh, and the biker girl. And the, the biker girl that she says, I say you let me have him first. Yeah. <laughs> I say we let him go. And she's great in it. And now, uh, actually, you can... Uh, last year, she did 13 Nights of Elvira on Hulu. And so there were 13 episodes. And you can see films such as Cannibal Woman in the Avocado Jungle of Death, Puppet Master, Dem- Demomic, "Dynamic Toys, Hobgob- Hobgoblins the gingerbread dad, and doll man. Say that five times fast. <laughs> Very nice. And finally, currently, she is the host of Elvira's Asylum at Not Scary Farm. My only complaint about her is she always wear the same outfit, and I wish every once in a while she'd change it up and wear something low-cut and sexy.
4: <laughs> it was weird with me because I didn't find anything attractive about her. To me, she was like Mae West, where she's supposed to be sexy. Now, that has nothing to do with her. That has to do with the malfunction in my brain. Mm. But James and I got to see her in person because... uh, I don't know if it was you or your friend won that t-shirt contest, which let us go to the Elvira opening of the um, American Werewolf in Paris.
5: No, no, uh, Rajiv... He had tickets and he couldn't go and it was like a, a real like it was it was the first a Hollywood to, opening yeah it was a I'd real opening I worked on
4: movies all the time I've never been to a real opening mm-hmm. and this had hearses coming in front they had a, a it was at the uh, Chinese theater
5: and they had people making make you know making people up in the side so that you'd have scratches on you and yeah. like all kinds of stuff and
4: she was the she was the host and she was great and she's like oh look at here's the star you know it was just like one of those 30s uh ones you see in movies like Singing it was in a in man's rain. Chinese that was, was great. Cool. And, uh, you know, so I said hello, and she ignored me. But <laughs> anyway, that's my little taste of glory with uh, Elvira. Well, I'm going to talk about the man that she replaced, and that was Seymour. And Seymour was pretty much my horror host. Um, he was during the 70s, and he was in L.A. And I, it, it had to be the creature feature that he was doing. But he used to call his... Um, Oh, what was it? Well, eventually it became Seymour's Monster Rally. But he holds a special place in my heart because that was the very first uh horos that I've ever knew. He looked kinda like a love child between uh, John Carradine and that Raymond Day Johnson, you know, the guy that who could call you could call me Ray and you could call me Jay. If you look at him, that's what he looks like. Even the suit and everything. He has a little cape though. And uh his d- demeanor was sort of like a used car salesman. His r- real name was Larry Vincent, and he came from Massachusetts, uh, where, among other things, he was on a kid's show that showed Three Stooges cartoons. <laughs> when he finally came to L.A., he did a bunch of voice work on the Three Stooges cartoon. It <laughs> was out then. And he did live action. He was, he was on Get Smart, Mission Impossible, and The Flying Nun, and stuff like that. But in 1969, he came to Channel 9 and was working at the station. And uh, he took over the shock package that was there. He called it Fright Night. And the way it would begin with him is that there was just a very cheap set because basically there was like a wall, a very flat wall, not as good as our haunted house walls. It was just painted, had a little ivy. And the announcer would come on and goes, now that master of the macabre, that epitome of evil, the most sinister man to crawl across the face of the earth, Seymour, and then it would be this guy.
7: Anyway, what's so hard about picking a lock is just a question of a little practice. Now allow me to demonstrate. A pair of handcuffs loaned to me by the LAPD and a hairpin loaned to me by a young lady the other evening. When I was over at her apartment, she was quite attractive. But 5'8", well, that's another story, of course. Now, I'll handcuff myself to, uh, to the telephone over here.
2: You're making a big mistake.
7: Huh? I will attempt to handcuff myself to the telephone. Certainly, I will put the telephone in the handcuff. Then... You'd be surprised. Well, give me the police department. I don't know how these handcuffs work.
4: And he would come from the uh, slime-covered wall. He'd open the door. And um, he had lots of bits on a payphone, because that's the other thing on the set. And it would just be him on the phone talking. You know, it was like the Bob Newhart-type humor. Or he'd be behind the wall talking. It was like a radio show, because he was trying to crash parties, or he's... Trying to get food off his his head. The pizza fella instead of pizza man was the company there. And uh, so they really didn't do any bits (laughs) on the show. It was where you couldn't see him. And he would also appear in the movie too. And he'd be heckling the movie on screen. And uh, always too he'd say, you know, here are scenes from next week. And he would show some crazy movie from a, a silent movie scene. And sure enough, they put that in the movie, so it was a scene from next week, but it wasn't the real movie. <laughs> he was the first um, horror guy at Not Scary Farm. It was him, and I think this is the order, then it was Wolfman Jack when he passed away, and then it was Elvira. So over at, at that... He switched ch- stations from Channel 9 to Channel 5, and that's when he had the Seymour's Monster Rally. And... Uh, I had a Mike, my friend Mike Post had a monster club. And basically all he'd do is go over to his house, read Famous Monster Magazine, and then watch Seymour's Monster <laughs> Rally afterwards. And that, that was pretty much the meetings. But he he still insisted that we had the minutes.
3: <laughs> <laughs> you followed Robert's time. <laughs>
4: yes. Uh, and uh, later on, while he was doing this, he was still in other things. In fact, he was in the Apple Dumpling Gang. And he was in The Incredible Two-Headed Transplants, which should have been on his show, you know, with Rosie Greer, and I forget who the other guy is, but... Um, was he the, the other guy in Apple
1: Tumbling Guy?
5: Can
4: no, you? he was like a different gambling oh, guy. Okay, was, it was a small role. Um, anyway, it's sad to say he died of cancer in 1975, and um, Elvira, <laughs> they were going to need another ho host, ho she's the one that pitched her show... And got it and uh, anyway, and continued great LA horror. And uh, now we go back to James. What's another of your favorite uh-
5: I'm actually, uh, so out of Chicago before Fanguly, there was a, a guy named uh Marvin, and uh, he's played by Terry Bennett, and he was from 57 to 59. And uh, he was a kind of a cross between he looked like a beatnik. But he talked like Norman Bates. He had like this weird, like weird, nice. like unsettling uh, uh, voice. But you know, he had uh, you know glasses and kind of a mod haircut or something like that. And and uh, so he was uh, in December seventh, uh, nineteen fifty seven. He premiered, and and uh, it was funny because simultaneously he ran a children's show in the morning. <laughs> so he did a children's nice. show, and he did this. This, uh, the shock theater, they called it shock theater too. And, um, his bit was that he would have uh, a lady up there and it was like Wilson from home improvement. You never saw her face. And, uh, and it turns out it was his real wife, and he would maim or kill her every <laughs> every episode. Uh, 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 he'd be having her hung, you know, or like cutting her limbs off or whatever. And then, like either next commercial or next episode, she'd all be whole again and everything, and be fine. But but uh, so he'd always be torturing the his wife, uh, and it was actually his actual w- wife. Um, he was so popular like the character was so popular that for for uh, for a while they had uh, um, a sh- an after party show after the movie so that he'd have his little intro then he'd show the movies and then they'd have like what, what they called the uh, the the uh, shock tail party it, <laughs> a- after after it was like a half hour party and he had like he had like a, um, he had a band. And uh, that he arranged the music for. That's awesome. That's like Playboy After Dark or something, <laughs> yeah. and it's just Marvin. He he uh, he. The the band was called the uh, the Deadbeats, and they he arranged all the music for him. And then he he actually did arrange the music for the children's show as well. So he's like a big <laughs> big music guy. And and uh, anyways, he he ended in 1957 because. Uh, they they canceled the show because they put on the Friday night fights like a boxing. Oh. That late? They yeah, were doing? and they did a letter campaign and everything, but uh, yeah, that was it. Sports
4: went out. Yeah. Oh. Well, since you mentioned Svengooly, I think, Greg, you're talking about Sven-Goolie.
3: Let's say, Or is it son of Guli you're doing? Or
4: are you doing both?
3: Well, uh, I'll give a brief uh, little bit about the original Guli. So the original Guli is Jerry Bishop, and he did the character from 1970 to 1973. And he was the host. And then uh, rich Richard Cos, who is the current Sven Gooli was a big fan of the show. And he just started kind of sending jokes in. And Jerry Bishop would use those jokes. And then pretty soon Richard Coz became a writer on the show. And, oh, I didn't know uh, that. Uh, so that's how he got involved. And they became friends. And then in 79... Richard Cause took over as son of Sven Gulli. and it's funny to because so there, he's on now, nationally on Me TV. But it's funny to to see him back then. He was really trying to really be the son of of <laughs> what Jerry Bishop did. He kind of did like this kind of also kind of beatnik, and you know he some he kind of wear hippie clothes, and so it's funny to see Richard because kind of do his interpretation of what Jerry Bishop did. And so now it's something completely different. Oh yeah, you would never guess. So it went through a series of cancellations and then then come back. And then in 1995, Kaz was set to bring the show back and Bishop told him, you're all grown up so you can lose the son of and he became just Sven Gulli. So Sven lists some of his favorite horror movies as House of Wax, I Was a Teenage Werewolf, and fried green tomatoes. Those are his favorite <laughs> horror movies. Some of the uh, characters on the show is Doug Graves. He's the, is he the piano. piano guy. He's okay, a piano yeah. guy, and I, they went, they went to school together at high school, and they were in the marching band together. So that his real name is uh, nice. Doug Scharf. And then Kerwin is a small, is a smart aleck rubber chicken who helps Sven Gulli read the viewer mail. And uh, in two thousand fourteen. The original casket that was used by both Bishop and cause on camera was retired and donated to the museum Museum of Broadcast Communication, and so now they have the the beautiful casket that you see on oh, MeTV. Yeah. So that that in a nutshell is uh, Sven Gulli. He's. And,
4: well, we, I was gonna say he's great. I uh, I got introduced. There was a guy at work that said talked about him. Said it was on MeTV, and it was just like a whole refreshing thing because. I didn't realize all the other horror hosts that are around now. That was the first one I'd seen forever, and he was perfect. It was right back in the childhood again.
3: And I would say of all the catalogs that the other hosts have, they have the best. They've got the universal, and I never get tired of the... the sometimes yeah. you watch a movie, and it's hard to sit through. All the films on Sven Gulli are great. He
4: has that, and they also have... It's sort of like they have the Creature Features one, too, because they have... Um, the B-50 movies, like Monster on Campus and that. And then they'll have the science fiction, like the Hidden World or It Came From Outer Space. So it's great. It's all the ones, it's pretty much what Seymour used to play. That was the final one in the 70s when they had everything, you know. Mm. But the good stuff. Not the, you know, uh, Hatchet for a Honeymoon or I Dismembered Mama. I'm not that big a fan of that stuff. But Mm, Except for the titles, of course.
3: Yeah. Yeah, a lot of times the titles are much better than the films of those. Well, no,
4: that's true today.
3: He got sued. There was a civil action because people felt they didn't get enough. He did a uh, the first 80s 3D broadcast of Revenge of the Creature, and you paid 89 cents for your cardboard glasses, and people felt they didn't get enough 3D for the 89 cents. <laughs> <laughs> well, Elvira
4: got away with the, <laughs> I think it was *Gorilla at Large, and it was I couldn't get it to work at all,
3: so... Or Jaws
5: and, 3D, remember?
3: And that? there's also uh, there's also rumors of that broadcast, including accidental pornographic images, but sadly, those are false.
4: <laughs> Very good. Well, here's another beatnik character. I didn't realize there were so many uh, guys trying to do beatnik stuff. But this is Gualardi, and he's out of Cleveland. And uh, I think he started uh, 59 or 60s when he started. He's kind of a bright comet of anarchy that shot across the sky and then was gone. He, he didn't last too many years. It's kind of like an experimental television show more than uh, horror host stuff. And um, he just lasted one month shy of three years. He was only in Ohio, but had lots of influence. Drew Carey's show, he used to wear uh, Goularty t-shirts, the Cramps and other musicians they got songs uh, and albums named after some of his catchphrase. And the indie bands and stuff, punk bands out of Ohio, they all list him as as uh, one of their influences. And there's his son then too, which is you know kind of an, uh, one of his influences. That's Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, you know the guy who made Boogie Nights and Magnolia and There Will <laughs> Be Blood. That's his son. That's <laughs> his son. That's wow. Goulardi's son. Wow. And uh, I th- I think uh, Goulardi's Ernie Anderson. That's his real name. And he was a disc jockey. I bet they all were kind of disc jockeys, all these guys, or, you know, weathermen or, you know, some other thing. They didn't dream up being a, uh, you know, want to be a horror host. He had a a movie show, a morning movie show with Tim Conway, with Tim Conway before (laughs) he became famous, and they did like a little comedy routine together. Um, And then he got the shock theater gig and uh he decided he was going to do it pretty different and it it was different for a costume he had this long lab coat but it had all these um slogan buttons all over it (laughs) and they had horn rim glasses with one of the lenses popped out and then he had uh sort of like the um, van dyke beard and mustache thing and all kinds of crazy wigs and they'd always change his hair was always different but messed up and he would uh they would film him either close-up or extreme close-up, and he'd be in this little weird half kind of weird circle thing just hanging out and with this just dramatic kind of scary light on him. And that was it. That was the whole thing. And you, he would act, and his crew and stuff would talk back with them. And it was really weird. He had a half-hipster, half-ethnic accent. And he had all kinds of catchphrases. It would be like, stay sick, turn blue, uh, we always say, hey, group, for the for all the audience. And uh, he's going to cool it with the boom booms. And that's because they would light up firecrackers and blow up crap, apples and different stuff. And you go, ooh, that's a good one. It's just <laughs> kind of weird stuff. But, well, we'll show you some stuff here, uh, some audio of him. And uh, you can judge for
8: yourself. See, when you're real close like that, you miss this whole bit here. <laughs> oh, boy. Don't too close. You'll see the phoning beer in the hallway. All right. I got a very interesting letter from a guy, and I want to read it. And my friend has gone to get it. There you are. Just going to go through uh, this here. Oh, listen, group. Somebody wrote in and said they don't care for Gulardi. Just call. Not only do they not care for him. But their whole bridge club hates it. Bridge? They already made the big one out in San Francisco so big you might as well give a game Go out Gulati plays nothing but poker. Wait a minute, I want to show you this. That ain't it, that's a bill. Come on, get where I am. will look at this one. Will you group? Will you look at the address over there, just lay a shot at this. Does this guy come on strong with the handwriting? Enclosed is the letter. Catch that one, baby. Dear Mr. Gulardi, like so many Clevelanders, we enjoy Channel 8 science fiction movies. Can you believe there's somebody that enjoys these movies? Whee! He says, please try to be less obtrusive. Thanks. And then he's got this fancy signature. 2903 Hampshire Road, Cleveland, 18, Ohio. Stevie Babes, take a shot of that note. This is important. Stevie, do me a favor. Next time you write me a note, try to be less obtrusive, will you, baby? Hey, next week, oh, tomorrow, yes, on Masterpiece Theater, The Island of Lost Souls. Can you believe that? Oh, here it is. Howard Hawkmore is not well. <laughs> and remember, Steve, what I told you, Oxnard. All right, babies, I tell you, you can't see this on your way out there.
4: He made fun of his movies. Uh, he was kind of the first one, I think, that on a regular basis. And he'd not only make fun of uh, the movies, but local and national celebrities. He'd always be making fun of Lawrence Welk and Mike Douglas. And then even cities. There was a the city of Parma, and he was always saying how white bread it was, and everyone wore white socks there. Mm-hmm. And um, he even had a team, and he, he got him and called the Parma whatever, like it was their team. You know, but it wasn't. And they'd have white socks. And <laughs> everyone would throw socks at the team. And then the other thing, of all things, he'd make fun of Oxnard, California. And he would he would go, remember what my dad always said? Remember Oxnard. Or he'd just work it in. And he had a raven for a short time, and he called it Oxnard. So I don't know what his, uh, his thing with Oxnard was, but uh, that endears him to me, since I'm from there. And in the background... He would always have like either jazz or rhythm and blues, sometimes
5: novelty songs all playing in the back. It would never be scary music. You know who he kind of sounds like? is, uh, Or reminds me a little bit of Jonathan Winters, like one of his characters. Well, kind of yeah, bit.
4: it could be. I yeah. mean, he's, he's about as demented. It all seemed like maybe they were on some substance while they are doing the show. I don't know. But it became very, very popular in Cleveland.
3: People have claimed the same stuff about us on this
4: show. <laughs> well, 70% of the of the, of the late-night market they got, and they beat The Tonight Show, actually. Oh, my gosh. And the, the Cleveland police used to tell him, I don't know if it was true, that there was a 35% drop in juvenile crime during his show on the Friday nights. He was on Friday. And then he had a daytime Especially show, too.
1: Especially
4: in Oxnard. Yeah. He used to... Um, have all kinds of endorsement deals and at at his uh, height, he made $65,000 a year on this stuff. And that was then, that was like, you know, when $65,000 was real money. But all at once he just quit. And uh, he retired his name and he went to Hollywood. I think he wanted to become, you know, something bigger, like an actor and and he did a, a little comedy album with Tim Conway, he met up with him again. Uh, and he did a lot of voice work, but he never really, uh, you know. There was a few, a few little guest appearances, but that's it. Uh, he ended up being the announcer on the Carol Burnett show. <laughs> he did lots of voiceover work. He did. He was the, one of the biggest um, voices they used on ABC, and he was the the announcer of America's Funniest Videos. That yeah. was Goulardi. Oh man. And, um, ah, there was nothing, there was nothing like good old Goularty. Unfortunately, he died of cancer in
5: 1997. Oh. Apparently, uh, one thing I learned from this horror host thing is you're going to die of cancer. <laughs> <laughs> well, James, what's another one
4: of your, uh, glorified horror hosts?
5: So I have, uh, 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 Chili Billy and his Bill Cardell, Cardell, uh, uh or Cardale, uh, Host of uh, Chiller Theater, and it was uh, from 1963 to 1983 in Pittsburgh for WIIC. Uh, he started in September 14th, 1963, and he was only the voice for about a year. And oh, so all he did him. was just narrate the show, and uh, you never saw him. And then uh, the first movie uh, movie was The uh, the Brain from Planet Eros was what I he never played. never even heard of that movie. <laughs> That was his first movie, and the next year in 1964, he began. He became on screen, uh, so he appeared as himself, uh, but he would always do characters, and he played characters like fake psychics, and uh, Captain Bad, and Maurice the Matchmaker, which is this crazy, weird. Uh, Thing where he would sit down in a big lounge chair and be drinking martinis and and he'd have like a, a newspaper he was reading or a magazine. And he'd come down and like he'd be drinking. Oops, you caught me. <laughs> and like, it just but right, we're like kind of infeminate and then he would have like matchmaking advice. But people would ride in and it would be like somebody who's a necrophiliac or something. <laughs> <laughs> he, goes, he goes, just between you and I. He's like, I'm a necrophiliac and I got a morgue, a job at the morgue. It's just between you and me. Lose the job. <laughs> 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 Stiff every oh. once in a while is fine, but lose the job.
4: <laughs> Man, that's so he great. Give advice,
5: you know, and he'd do this thing, and his sketch phrase, when he his signature sign off was, "Good night and sleep warm." After they'd seen the movie or whatever, he goes, "Oh it. yeah, good night okay. and sleep warm." And, um, it it his show was so popular in in uh, in Pittsburgh that it delayed the start of Saturday night live being shown in Pittsburgh for four years.
4: That shows you the power of the horror for
5: four years. And then, and then after that, they put him on afterwards. (laughs) (laughs) So yeah, he did that. uh, um, and he did all kinds of stuff. Like, like all these guys, they, you know, that especially when they started early, they did a bunch of stuff. So he would host like livestock car races Mm -hmm. and, and, uh, other sporting events like, but, but local sporting events and, and, uh, you know, and I think he ended up on the radio as well in his, his later years. Because they all had good voices. And so they they could do, like, those guys do voiceovers, this guy does radio. Oh, yeah. They all do stuff because that was really, you know, what they used to screen test for big time was, do you have a voice that, you know, they were more into the traditional voices.
4: The saddest part of all this is there's very little footage or audio or anything of any of these guys. There's enough to whet your appetite and, and to let you know, oh, yeah, it's not just hype. These guys were good. Yeah. And that's it. It's very sad. I mean, not Elvira. Thank goodness. There's lots of Elvira. And now we have Svengulli. But some of these older guys, they just melted that stuff down for chemicals. Well, Greg, you, know, you have another one, a more modern one. One of the new horror hosts.
3: I've got another, another one of my favorites I used to watch religiously. Joe Bob Briggs, host of Monster Vision. Nice.
5: And that's jo- really my mine, too, right? Cause, I mean, of course, I watched Elvira, but a lot of that, too, we would come over and watch that together.
3: Right? It was good, yes. Good times, indeed. Joe Bob Briggs was born John Irving Bloom, and he began his writing career at Texas Monthly and the, and the Dallas Times-Herald. He was a movie reviewer, and uh, so he kind of came up with the humorous persona of Joe Bob's Briggs. To review exploitation films and other genre films.
4: That's where I came across him. I guess he was everywhere, but the San Francisco Chronicle. Uh, my you Aunt Linda him? and my friend Leslie would send me the articles oh, on, no. <laughs> on his uh, you know, his movie uh, reviews.
3: Yeah, I didn't really know him as a writer. I only knew him as a host. But uh, Briggs' acting persona is that of an unapologetic redneck Texan with a avid love of the drive-in theater. He specialized in humorous but appreciative reviews of B-movies and cult films, which he calls drive-in movies, as distinguished from indoor bull bull stuff. Uh In addition to his usual parody of urbane, highbrow movie criticism, his columns would characteristically include colorful tales of women trouble and high-spirited brushes with the law, tales which... Inevitably concluded with his rush to catch a movie at a local drive in. (laughs) Usually with a female companion. Was this on Monster Vision or was this. No, no, this is just his writing. His. Okay. Yeah. And so it's kind of funny. They do a good job of explaining what his reviews ended with a brief rating of high points of the movie in question, including types of action, usually represented by a noun followed by the suffix foo, (laughs) number of bodies, number of female breasts. Yeah, I remember that three breasts and a chainsaw (laughs) was one of his reviews. A number of pints of blood spilled. Um, So a typical paragraph might sound something like this. No dead bodies, 117 breasts. Multiple aardvarking. Aardvarking was his word for uh, sexual intercourse. Cage dancing. Convenience store dancing. (laughs) Blindfold aardvarking. Blind man aardvarking. Lesbofu. Which which movie was that? That's the one I want to see. Pull Q-Fu. Drive-In Academy Award nominations for Tane McClure. (laughs) Joe Bob says check it out. (laughs) So after his writing time, he was asked to be a guest at the drive-in theater, which was on the... The movie channel back then, it was a sister network for Showtime, and so it went over so well that uh, the, the movie channel changed their format, thank you, and so he was in hiatus for a few few mo- few months, only to go to the TNT network where he hosted Monster Vision, and, you know, some of the sets and some of the things that they would do on, on Monster Vision, the movies weren't always great, some of them were fun to watch, some of them were not so great, but he they weren't it. the universal
4: ones or anything.
3: You know, I can't, I can't remember most of them. <laughs> I feel like he had like Night of the Lepus and you know things. Oh, okay. Things this well, those are good too. Yeah, and he also uh, had his male girl, Honey Gregory, which she was quite easy on the eyes. She was fun to watch. And oh, she she read the mail that people yeah. sent in. Yes. And actually, one of my favorite things that he did also was he was in Casino. He was kind of the knucklehead nephew. He was in uh, Casino. Yeah. He,
1: oh my gosh, <laughs> yeah. that
3: was him—the nephew that they fired, and then it got all the trouble.
4: Yeah, exactly. So. <laughs> I didn't know that till he just said it, yeah. and i I love that he was actually
5: on the on the um, the Daily Show for a year and a half. He was, yeah. Oh, was a
3: correspondent I didn't know that. as well. Yep. Yeah. But he didn't really do the Joe Bob's character. No, no, no. He kind of did something illustrate. a little different. So. Yeah. That is. Uh, one of my heroes, Joe Bob Briggs. Well, that that's great. I the what I don't remember the movies
4: either, but I remember like we were watching a clip from it, a, a Monster Vision, where he's talking about philosophers um, philosophy today <laughs> magazine and there was just all these bits and it was so great it was yeah. all the it was different really well written and oh like, uh, my gosh I don't think you could hard.
3: ever you'd ever have somebody go on for that long the way he did back then it's it's great but i we'll, we'll
4: never see anything no, like it no no well i think this is our last one James you have another one I don't so uh this is the last one and this is uh a great one. It's second in my heart because this is Bob Wilkins. And when we would go up to San Francisco to visit my Aunt Linda, we'd see this horror host. The first time we saw it was up for Aunt Linda and Uncle Sal's wedding. And before the day before that, I chased Daniel around, my brother, and he ran through a creek and cut his foot open. <laughs> almost in half. So he had to sit up you know, with stitches and a cast. So I stayed home with him at Aunt Linda's house, and they had a babysitter for us. And we begged her, oh, it was like a monster show, so let's see it. And there's this great music, this great horror thing, this goes through this wonderful thing. And at the very end of it, here comes this kind of rocking chair, little cigar, it looks like he's sort of a tax accountant <laughs> with glasses. And that, that was his style. He had this dry humor that was very funny, but mostly he wasn't making, once in a while he'd say, okay, go to sleep, this is not worth it. Don't stay up to watch this We we'll turn the TV off right now. But most of the time he would be trying to get you to enjoy and appreciate whatever crap he was playing. Can you
2: feature? That awful creature, can you feature? That ugly creature. Creature features. And feature features. About creatures. Creature features. Now the strangest thing about this show on two is its host, Bob Wilkins, and he brings it to you. <laughs> Creature, feature, and more creatures, and more features. And the creature's gonna get you tonight. You better not turn out your bedroom lights. He'll grab your head and give it such a bite. You may even die <laughs> from just a prize. Ain't nothing going to be, baby, I'll say be all right. Call the creature, going to get you,
1: baby.
9: He's going get you. Welcome to Channel 2's version of Saturday Night Fever. And tonight, um, there, there will be a creature. Get someone. Because we've got a movie about devil worshippers. They're nasty people. When they want somebody, they really go after them. This is a a low-budget film, like, you know, that's sort of (laughs) repetitive with tonight's, uh, the title of the show, Creature Features. But this was a a low-budget film, I'm sure a first effort, and it uh, has a lot of Texas written all over it. Shot down the border there. And what I want you to do tonight is sort of stick with this film like it was yours. It was your first effort, okay? And you can tune it off, tune out of it, whenever you think that you could have done a better job. All right? But please wait till the opening credits, all right? Enter the Devil. First time on television, and um, it, it's not bad. It has a surprise ending, and it's got a couple good things going for it. And, of course, we're, this show, we have to support first and second efforts by filmmakers, because who knows what'll happen to them later in the future. But a lot of people start off on low budget films and really have risen to great heights. For example, we have the gentleman with us tonight who produced this film, or had a lot to do with this film a long, long time ago.
4: He had some universal stuff, but he would have all kinds of the other kind of lowbrow uh, stuff as well. That was his uniform. He had like a, I think it was a tie and like a little suit jacket and a Rocky chair. And he'd always be smoking his cigars.
3: So he didn't have any makeup or anything like that.
4: No, no, he was not horror host at all. He was like a movie critic of <laughs> of horror movies.
3: He was a serial killer.
4: So he, yeah, so yes, pretty much. It would look like oh, he was so nice. I don't know why he dismembered his whole family. That his show was Creature Features, like I said. He was a commercial man, who he wrote and produced commercials even during the show, but afterwards as well, and. Uh, He was doing, it was Channel 9 in Sacramento where he got his first job. And he was doing, he was the Masters of Ceremony for a retirement party of one of their employees. And they liked him, thought he was so funny. They said, hey, we're going to give you a show. So just like Hulardi, they gave him a regular movie show. So he would just talk about regular film and that. And then um, they gave him the horror show. I don't know why everybody that doesn't have another job, they get the horror host job. And um, during the the breaks, and uh, you know, even in that movie show, he'd do this. He'd have interviews with amateur filmmakers or just weird, eccentric people, like people had seen UFOs locally or any kind of crazy story. He'd be having these interviews between these regular movies, like you know, they could be showing Casablanca, and then they'd come out and he'd be doing this weird interview. And then he continued that too when he he got the you know the horror host stuff and um, then he got kind of poached to oakland and so that's why i could see him over there in san bruno but he he went back and he had two shows so he would do the show in oakland and then he'd do another show over there in sacramento and then he had a daytime show which was like captain cosmic or something and he'd show science fiction but you never saw him he just had this silver motorcycle helmet that he would wear and you just sort of kind of recognize his voice we didn't see that. We just saw, um, you know, the horror host stuff. And then they didn't think he had enough jobs. They gave him the weatherman job at mm-hmm. one point, And he got nominated for an Emmy because while he was doing the ski report, he was showing in Her Majesty's Secret Service where <laughs> we're skiing around shooting each other <laughs> at the beginning. So, uh, and eventually he quit he was done with the show, and he went back to advertising and, uh, and had some very good contracts. So there's Bob Wilkins.
3: And what kind of cancer does he have? <laughs>
4: he, he died, but I and I don't know. Maybe he had cancer, too. It's the horror movies. They, they have terrible carcinogens in them. It's sad. Well, now you've heard some of our favorites, and they're all great. Uh, but there are so many more. If we missed one of your favorites, post it on our Facebook page. And tell us why you love that host. Now it's time to go, unfortunately. It's time for us to recede behind the slimy wall and leave these hosts to their undead slumber.
3: And cancer. That was
10: 54 minutes. Frankenstein was the first in line and the wolf night's sleep I got woke up about 12 o'clock and I jumped right to my feet there was gremlins and goblins dragons and zombies lordy what an awful sight I said good buddy you may get me but brother let me tell you that it's gonna be after the fight Frankenstein
3: We're back with another inductee to our SISG Hall of Fame. This time up is our Favorite People That Ever Lived category.
5: Yes, it is, Greg, and it was a hard-fought battle between this guy and any mine that ever lived. Frank, why don't
3: you tell us about who it is and why this man is so deserving? Well, there were so many great
4: people of both sexes that could have filled this category that we had to write all of our favorites down on tiny sheets of paper, and then we coated them with bacon grease and let the flies decide. And I think that that little bottle green blowfly that landed first made an excellent choice. And that choice is a great Phil Harris. I think he fits nicely into our Hall of Fame because he's strange, oh, so interesting, and, well, we have to admit it, a little gamey. So, congratulations, Phil Harris, wherever you are.
11: The Red Death had long devastated the country. No pestilence had ever been so fatal or so hideous. Blood was its avatar and its seal, the redness and the horror of blood. There were sharp pains and sudden dizziness, and then profuse bleeding at the pores with dissolution. The scarlet stains upon the body, and especially upon the face of the victim, were the pest ban, which shut him out from the aid and from the sympathy of his fellow men and the whole seizure, progress and termination of the disease were the incidents of half an hour. But the Prince Prospero was happy and dauntless and sagacious. When his dominions were half depopulated, he summoned to his presence a thousand hale and light-hearted friends from among the knights and dames of his court and with these retired to the deep seclusion of one of his castellated abbeys. This was an extensive and magnificent structure the creation of the Prince's own eccentric yet august taste. A strong and lofty wall girdled it in. This wall had gates of iron. The courtiers, having entered, brought furnaces and massy hammers and welded the bolts. They resolved to leave means neither of ingress nor egress to the sudden impulses of despair or of frenzy from within. The abbey was amply provisioned. With such precautions, the courtiers might bid defiance to contagion. The external world could take care of itself. In the meantime, it was folly to grieve or to think. The prince had provided all the appliances of pleasure. There were buffoons, there were improvisatori, there were ballet dancers, there were musicians, there was beauty, there was wine. All these and security were within. Without was the Red Death. It was toward the close of the fifth or sixth month of his seclusion, and while the pestilence raged most furiously abroad, that the Prince Prospero entertained his thousand friends at a masked ball of the most unusual magnificence. It was a voluptuous scene, that masquerade. But first let me tell you of the rooms in which it was held there were seven, an imperial suite. In many palaces, however, such suites form a long and straight vista, while the folding doors slide back nearly to the walls on either hand, so that the view of the whole extent is scarcely impeded. Here the case was very different, as might have been expected from the Duke's love of the bizarre. The apartments were so irregularly disposed that the vision embraced but little more than one at a time. There was a sharp turn at every twenty or thirty yards, and at each turn a novel effect. To the right and the left, in the middle of each wall, a tall and narrow Gothic window looked out upon a closed corridor which pursued the windings of the suite. These windows were of stained glass whose colour varied in accordance with the prevailing hue of the decorations of the chamber into which it opened. That at the eastern extremity was hung, for example, in blue and vividly blue were its windows. The second chamber was purple in its ornaments and tapestries and here the panes were purple. The third was green throughout and so were the casements. The fourth was furnished and lighted with orange. The fifth with white. The sixth with violet. The seventh apartment was closely shrouded in black velvet tapestries that hung all over the ceiling and down the walls, falling in heavy folds upon a carpet of the same material and hue. But in this chamber only, the colour of the windows failed to correspond with the decorations. The panes here were scarlet, a deep blood colour, Now in no one of the seven apartments was there any lamp or candelabrum amid the profusion of golden ornaments that lay scattered to and fro or depended from the roof. There was no light of any kind emanating from lamp or candle within the suite of chambers. But in the corridors that followed the suite there stood opposite to each window a heavy tripod bearing a brazier of fire that projected its rays through the tinted glass and so glaringly illuminated the room. And thus were produced a multitude of gaudy and fantastic appearances. And in the western or black chamber, the effect of the firelight that streamed upon the dark hangings through the blood-tinted panes was ghastly in the extreme. And produced so wild a look upon the countenances of those who entered that there were few of the company bold enough to set foot within its precincts at all. It was in this apartment also that there stood against the western wall a gigantic clock of ebony. Its pendulum swung to and fro with a dull heavy monotonous clang. And when the minute hand made the circuit of the face and the hour was to be stricken, there came from the brazen lungs of the clock a sound which was clear and loud and deep and exceedingly musical. But of so peculiar a note and emphasis that at each lapse of an hour, the musicians of the orchestra were constrained to pause momentarily in their performance to hearken to the sound. And thus the waltzers perforce ceased their evolutions A light laughter at once pervaded the assembly. The musicians looked at each other and smiled as if at their own nervousness and folly, and made whispering vows each to the other that the next chiming of the clock should produce in them no similar emotion. And then after the lapse of sixty minutes, which embraced three thousand and six hundred seconds of the time that flies, there came yet another chiming of the clock. And then there were the same disconcert and tremulousness and meditation as before. But in spite of these things, it was a gay and magnificent revel. The tastes of the Duke were peculiar. He had a fine eye for colours and effects. He disregarded the decor of mere fashion. His plans were bold and fiery, and his conceptions glowed with barbaric luster. There are some who would have thought him mad. His followers felt that he was not. It was necessary to hear and see and touch him to be sure that he was not. He had directed in great part the movable embellishments of the seven chambers upon occasion of this great fate, and it was his own guiding taste which had given character to the masqueraders. Be sure they were grotesque. There were much glare and glitter and piquancy and phantasm, much of what has been since seen in Hanani, there were arabesque figures with unsuited limbs and appointments, there were delirious fancies such as the madman fashions, there were much of the beautiful, much of the wanton, much of the bizarre, something of the terrible, and not a little of that which might have excited disgust. To and fro in the seven chambers there stalked in fact a multitude of dreams, and these The dreams writhed in and about, taking hue from the rooms and causing the wild music of the orchestra to seem as an echo to their steps. And anon there strikes the ebony clock which stands in the hall of velvet. And then for a moment all is still and all is silent, save the voice of the clock. The dreams are stiff-frozen as they stand. But the echoes of the chime die away, they have endured but an instant, and a light half-subdued laughter floats after them as they depart. And now again the music swells and the dreams live, and writhe to and fro more merrily than ever, taking hue from the many tinted windows through which stream the rays from the tripods. But to the chamber which lies most westwardly of the seven, there are now none of the maskers who venture For the night is waning away, and there flows a ruddier light through the blood-coloured panes, and the blackness of the sable drapery appalls. And to him whose foot falls upon the sable carpet there comes from the near clock of ebony a muffled peal more solemnly emphatic than any which reaches their ears who indulge in the more remote gaieties of the other apartments. But these other apartments were densely crowded, and in them beat feverishly the heart of life, and the revel went whirlingly on, until at length there commenced the sounding of midnight upon the clock. And then the music ceased, as I have told, and the evolutions of the waltzes were quieted, and there was an uneasy cessation of all things as before. But now there were twelve strokes to be sounded by the bell of the clock. And thus it happened, perhaps, that more of thought crept with more of time into the meditations of the thoughtful among those who revelled. And thus, too, it happened, perhaps, that before the last echoes of the last chime had utterly sunk into silence, there were many individuals in the crowd who had found leisure to become aware of the presence of a masked figure which had arrested the attention of no single individual before. And the rumour of this new presence having spread itself whisperingly around, there arose at length from the whole company a buzz or murmur, expressive of disapprobation and surprise, then finally of terror, of horror, and of disgust. In an assembly of phantasms such as I have painted, it may well be supposed that no ordinary appearance could have excited such sensation. In truth, the masquerade license of the knight was nearly unlimited, but the figure in question had out Herod and gone beyond the bounds of even the prince's indefinite decorum. There are chords in the hearts of the most reckless which cannot be touched without emotion. Even with the utterly lost, to whom life and death are equally jests, there are matters of which no jest can be made. The whole company, indeed, seemed now deeply to feel that in the costume and bearing of the stranger neither wit nor propriety existed. The figure was tall and gaunt, and shrouded from head to foot in the habiliments of the grave. The mask, which concealed the visage, was made so nearly to resemble the countenance of a stiffened corpse that the closest scrutiny must have had difficulty in detecting the cheat, and yet all this might have been endured, if not approved by the mad revellers around. But the mamma had gone so far as to assume the type of the Red Death. His vesture was dabbled in blood, and his broad brow with all the features of the face was besprinkled with the scarlet horror. When the eyes of Prince Prospero fell upon this spectral image, which with a slow and solemn movement, as if more fully to sustain its role, stalked to and fro among the waltzers. He was seen to be convulsed in the first moment with a strong shudder, either of terror or distaste, but in the next his brow reddened with rage. Who dares, he demanded hoarsely of the courtiers who stood near him, who dares insult us with this blasphemous mockery? Seize him and unmask him, that we may know whom we have to hang at sunrise from the battlements. It was in the eastern, or blue, chamber in which stood the Prince Prospero as he uttered these words. They rang through the seven rooms loudly and clearly. For the Prince was a bold and robust man, and the music had become hushed at the waving of his hand. It was in the blue room where stood the Prince, with a group of pale courtiers by his side. At first, as he spoke, there was a slight rushing movement of this group in the direction of the intruder, who at the moment was also near at hand, and now with deliberate and stately step, made closer approach to the speaker. But from a certain nameless awe, with which the mad assumptions of the Mummer had inspired the whole party, there was found none to put forth hand to seize him so that unimpeded he passed within a yard of the Prince's person and while the vast assembly as if with one impulse shrank from the centre of the rooms to the walls he made his way uninterruptedly but with the same solemn and measured step which had distinguished him from the first through the blue chamber to the purple through the purple to the green through the green to the orange Through this again to the white, and even thence to the violet, ere a decided movement had been made to arrest him. It was then, however, that the Prince Prospero, maddening with rage and shame of his own momentary cowardice, rushed hurriedly through the six chambers, while none followed him on account of a deadly terror that had seized upon them. He bore aloft a drawn dagger and had approached in rapid impetuosity to within three or four feet of the retreating figure when the latter, having attained the extremity of the velvet apartment, turned suddenly and confronted his pursuer. There was a sharp cry, and the dagger dropped gleaming upon the sable carpet upon which, instantly afterwards, fell prostrate in death the Prince Prospero. Then, summoning the wild courage of despair, a throng of revellers at once threw themselves into the black apartment and seizing the mama, whose tall figure stood erect and motionless within the shadow of the ebony clock, gasped in unutterable horror at finding the grave settlements and corpse-like mask which they handled with so violent a rudeness, untenanted by any tangible form. And now was acknowledged the presence of the Red Death. He had come like a thief in the night, and one by one dropped the revellers in the blood-bedewed halls of their revel, and died each in the despairing posture of his fall. And the life of the ebony clock went out with that of the last of the gay, and the flames of the tripods expired and darkness and decay and the red death held illimitable dominion over all.
2: Ice cream cones, take no sin, take off your skin and dance around your bones. When the lazy syncopation of the music softly moans, take no sin, take off your skin and dance around your bones. The polar bears aren't green up in Greenland. They've got the right idea. They think it's great to refrigerate while we all cremate down here. Just be like those bamboo babies in the South Sea tropic zones no sin to take off your skin and dance around your bones.
4: This time we're out in the garage, garage slash workroom, where we've been preparing for Halloween. We thought it'd be an appropriate place to talk about tips for making yard hunts. These are ideas and techniques that we've picked up over the years, and it, we think it'll help push
5: your hunt to the next level. So take some notes, or sit back, have another mummy dog and some punch, and relax as we babble for a bit about construction.
4: Yes, and also details. A lot of times with the yard haunts, what I see lacking, and this is of course a very arrogant point of view, but it's the details. And here's some simple uh, detail work. For rust, this is an old stage thing, and I learned it from old Jim McLaughlin. You get orange shellac, or which they call amber shellac now, and cinnamon, and you mix it to the consistency you want. This is for, you can put on hinges, you can put on bars, all kinds of stuff. You need to treat the surface, either if you're going to put it on a regular surface that's already painted, you don't prepare to do anything, but if you're going to make a huge metal beam or bars or something that's rusted, you have a light color and then some dark splotches and colors here. I Sometimes take a spray can and spray patterns on it, and what that'll help you do is you'll have light rust and dark rust, and you just brush it on, and you'll get the little particles then you have to let it dry it always looks good let better later and uh you can get it to look like very light rust or you can get it to be like a ship at sea you know that just washed up and uh, that's a it's a good now if, if you're not lighting it then it doesn't matter <laughs> but in the daylight and the well-lit thing it really adds a lot to a yard hunt um on, and then there's grave detailing uh this is mostly just painting Uh, If you're making them out of styrofoam, one of the techniques you can use, a lot of people talk about using um, like aerosol spray paint and it'll eat at the grave. But I'd like to take a little spritz bottle of acetone and just spritz little bits on it. Little, be very careful with it. Don't use too much. And it is like the weird weathering of very, very old graves, like over 100 years. It gives the bizarre pit... And random pattern that, that you see if you go to the graves back east in uh, you know from the 1700s and before
5: now, how do you do the, the lettering
4: well there's a lot of different ways I think most people know that I mean some people cut it out and router out but uh, a lot of people burn it out they either get um, I was using one of these from... waxers uh, it's used for another process and and they have a like a flat head but then also a uh, wood-burning tool, lots of different ones of those of different sizes, you could do some really good lettering. You know, you make sure you make it, even if you're going to make it rickety and, and uh, decaying lettering, it has to be put on the grave perfect because, of course, when they made a grave, they try to do it right and then it deteriorates, so it can't yeah. be all out of shape. You can do fun stuff, but it's more
5: convincing and tight if you have the lettering um now they do it with a mill or whatever you know but but even back then they did it perfect like there's all kinds yeah. of stuff so you got to remember to do the thing perfect and then mess it up afterwards yeah exactly and that that's the kind of detail that makes it look real and then how do you get it to make it look like uh, you know like a tomb like a gray or a tombstone what a lot
4: what? of this technique I'm gonna tell you now is is old modeling technique it's nothing new but you uh, use acrylic paints generally. And you'll, first of all, do all black over everything, or a very dark, dark gray, and get it even darker into all the cracks you've made, and all. And you let that dry thoroughly. Then you have three different other kind of grays. You got a medium gray, a little lighter, and the highlight. And these grays can be mixed with other colors, so maybe there's a little bit of a green tinge to it, a little bit of a blue. Um, and you use a natural sponge. And the first one you do is the medium, the the darkest before the black. And you cover a lot of area with that. You cover most of the thing with that, except for your darkest darks, and you let that dry. And then you hit the little bit lighter one. And this, you try to get some patterns and and just hit more of the highlights. And the last one, you just get the brightest brights, because it'll be a bright. And it can be pretty bright on this one, because what you're going to do afterwards is you're going to use some glazing. You get some spritz bottles of water and you mix up these acrylic glazes, and they're all different kinds. There's the very expensive art ones, um, like Liquitex, and these various uh, other art ones. But uh, Bear has Fox glaze. There's uh, another kind called Simple glaze. You get it at the, you know, Home Depot or one of those stores. Ralph Ralph Lauren puts one out. Felspar. It's just a clear glaze and you you mix that with quite a bit of water and then you add a color to it and this could be you know even other strange colors of blues and greens and mosses and you just spritz it and let it and one of them should be like a brownish color too and you'll spritz it and spritz it all over and add all these weird colors and you could also just get a regular water one if it's too dark you spritz a little of that out and change it maybe work it over with a brush and you let the glazes dry, and then you come back with your highlight and you punch up your highlights again with it, with the lightest of the color. And then you can work it in again with more glazes. And if you keep doing it, you get to get some realistic colors and uh, interesting looks from a very simple process. You know, it's, it's like doing the walls, you know, <laughs> and some of the other glazing on furniture. It's not brain surgery um for plaster skulls if you're making them yourself you know you have the mold or you make a mold with latex and you produce them out you got to remember when you want to stain those that you can also use that same matte glaze and you you'll uh you know rub it or brush it on that and let it dry and that'll seal it so it won't be all uneven when you do your next staining you could use real stain or or you could use just another glaze with the dark brown or different other colors. And you do rubbing, you put it, you brush it in there and you'll rub the skull off and, and just, you know, in the dark areas inside the eye or, or in certain areas you make it really dark and the others you leave, uh, you know, lighter, like most of that stuff, the, the antiquing sort of look. Um, These are all things that can make your graves look better, and they're all very simple, and you just keep, you know, every grave can look different. Uh, Everything you build can look different. When you're having like a little maze in your front yard, or even if doing a haunted house, and using the chroma depth, I think that's what you call it, process where you have the red, I think it's red, yellow, and blue. And you can add other colors, oranges and violets and different stuff. And if you wear these kind of glasses, the reds really go to the front. And the blues really sink in. And the yellows stay in the middle. You get these great 3D effects. But uh, the best stuff to use is that wildfire. But it's so expensive. If you're going to have to use the cheap stuff, it's going to be very translucent. It's not going to have a lot of of the uh, pigment in it. So be sure, it's very painstaking to do this, but be sure to make your design all in white. You'll have black and then make your design in white and then paint a couple coats of the black light paint over it. And that'll make it very vibrant and help the, um, the effect. 3D effect work. If you don't do that, it'll be too dim and it really won't work and uh, it it'll be time consuming, but oh my gosh, I think that wildfire is thirty bucks or sixty bucks maybe for you know just a quart or less. Of yeah, the, like of the a material. little bottle full of it. although if you can afford it, that stuff is the best. <laughs> so it's really rich and it's really got a lot of pigment in it. And if you don't know about chroma depth, you you can go and I may be saying even the name the wrong name for the process, but there are these different glasses, they have 3D and they have this chroma uh, depth time of um, 3D effect. And you can buy them off the internet in all different kinds of paper or plastic, relatively cheap. And you just pass them out to the people and uh, they wear them while they're going through different hallways with this painting effect on the walls. So make everything just, If you can put it on the floor, it seems to rise above like a foot if you do it right or coming off the wall, it's a very cool, Pretty cheap effect to make a a maze or something look fantastic.
5: Here's another fun thing that you can do that we've done several times. And I don't know, where did you guys find out? Did you just decide to do it? There was a
4: friend of ours, Jerry Carlton, who had a party with another guy. And and they put together one of these mazes. That's the first time I ever saw it. So it it was That was 1972, I think.
5: I think it was easier back in the day to find large refrigerator boxes or large couch boxes or those kind of things. But I think appliance you can still boxes. go to go to an appliance shop. We always uh, had to go to an appliance shop and dig you're, through their trash. You're lucky, yeah. So many, but so much
4: recycling now.
5: But. Yeah, but uh, you know, and then they pack them down and they get rid of them, right? So, but what you can do is you get you have to get a lot of them, a lot of boxes, and it's like it's basically a crawl through maze. It works better if you can do it on the lawn because it saves everybody's knees uh but it's it's not hard at all you just basically what i used to do because we used to do it every year is you you would get boxes and the easiest way is to put you know get all the boxes you have close all close them all up on on the ends and put them all together in any weird configuration that you can do and then what you do is you start building a maze from, from that, from those boxes, instead of doing that, like we, from the inside, from the inside, the uh, cut flaps, go through, make dead ends, do all of these things. And then at the end, kind of just, you know, change the boxes around a little bit at the end. The trick of it is, is that they, if you get like teenagers in there or that kind of thing, they'll rip up real quick if you just use packaging tape. So the trick that we found out to do is when you're putting boxes together, you'll just take a phillips head screwdriver and make two holes in them and and, you know a hole in the in the in the uh in the one box and a hole in the other and on the top and the bottom so there'll be four holes and you use old wire and stick the wire on the outside you know the wire that's that's actually got the the uh you know the plastic on the outside so it's it's real smooth it's not going to catch anybody and the tie goes on the outside so nobody feels it and you just twist them together, and it locks those things tied up. And and you can just have people in there kicking the boxes, destroy you know, trying to destroy the thing. And it and it it really makes so that nobody can get out. They got to go through the maze. Make sure the wire is deep inside;
4: it's not near an edge, or then it'll tear out. But you know, eventually. yeah, yeah,
5: yeah, yeah. But uh, you know, and we we did we would do like a double flap. We put we put uh, you know, cut out other pieces of plywood, or mean, put other pe- pieces of. Uh, of cardboard and stick them on the corners and then punch through both of them so that it's double thick and you know just just use your imagination but that's the trick to getting you know use packaging tape when you can but then use that wire and wire it all together make the flaps make lots of dead ends and then of course do it at night and throw tarps over it or whatever and make it as pitch dark as possible because then it's it just makes it way more fun because you can be very simple on on the actual maze, but people, you know, yeah, but it's
4: pitch dark, of course.
5: They have a lot more fun because they can't get out. Yeah, it's real fun. And then you space people out so they're not like 50 people in the maze too as well because people be backtracking over each other and that kind of stuff. But super fun and, and it's a great party, uh, uh, thing to have at a Halloween party.
4: Well, these are just a few, a very few, a tidbit, um, And uh, for one reason is most of the time you need diagrams to explain this to people. But these things we figured we could just talk about and you'd understand. So we hope among all these tips there are some that will be useful for you uh, in your quest to make your better yard hunt. So and uh, no matter what kind of yard hunt you're building, just build it. They're all fun.
10: Make Halloween fun and easy. One-stop shopping at Woolworth or Woolco for your Halloween needs. Costumes from $1.83 to $3.99, like Six Million Dollar Man, Bionic Woman, Superheroes, Batman, Superman, Spider-Man, and a new favorite for girls, Holly Hobby. You can get wrapped candies of every kind. Bubblegum, lollipops, fun size candy bars. Get this Halloween record, Sounds to Make You Shiver, just $1.89. Make Halloween fun and easy. Make just one stop at Woolworth or Woolco.
3: It's Hall of Fame time again, and the category this time up is Literature.
5: Yes, believe it or not, we have read one or two books in our day. Hell, we have even had a reading each month on the show, so you don't have to read. Pretty magnanimous, if you ask me. Frank, you're in charge of the
3: book club. Why don't you tell us what won and why? Well, this book
4: is dear to our hearts. We've used a lot of the stories out of it. It's strangely enough. Uh, This book has fascinated me since, I guess, 11 or 12 when I first came across it, and I'd heard stories out of it well before that. These are the stories of uh, bizarre and mysterious, and all true according to the author who researched them and got letters and uh, diaries from people. Some of them uh, a century before him, some of them his contemporaries. It's a great book, and keep listening because we're going to keep playing stories from it. Back in the days of
12: sailing ships, People from all over the world were coming to America, looking for a new start in life. There was this one ship named the White Cloud, and it's her last voyage that this tale is about. She set sail for the new world with a full passenger list. Now, these folks weren't poor like a lot of the early settlers. They brought things of great value, like jewels gold heirlooms. And while they tried to keep these things hidden on a small ship, the word gets around among the crew. Now the captain of the White Club had been a pirate when he was younger, but was given a pardon by the king because of the shortage of experienced sea captains. When he heard about the treasures on board, his thoughts turned back to the old pirate ways. He plotted with the crew to murder the passengers, take their belongings, set fire to the ship, and escape in the longboat. On the last night out of port, the murderous crew crept below with knives drawn. They spared. No. Every single passenger was brutally killed. Then the plunder began. Sea bags were slashed open. Trunks were bashed apart. Everything of value was piled on deck and divided among the thieves. After they had loaded the longboat, the captain set fire to the white cloud, and the smaller boat pulled away from the flaming hull. Suddenly, the wind shifted. The ship, now a mass of flames, bore down directly on the longboat. The villains laid to the oars, but it was no use. With a thunderous, fiery crash, the blazing ship split the small boat in half, and the evil crew was dumped, screaming, into the fiery sea. All hands were lost. Since that infernal night, every year on the first new moon of the fall, the flaming ship reappears. You can hear the eerie screams of terror from the tormented men as the blazing ghost ship nears the shore. She suddenly bursts into a great fireball, then disappears, only to appear again moments later. This happens three times. After the third explosion, No matter the direction of the wind, the blazing Seagorn Inferno disappears over the horizon, always to the northeast, not to be seen again for a full year. Folks who have seen this ghost ship swear that they could smell burning canvas, rope, and human flesh.
4: the creature category. A very hard choice to make. It's even a hard uh, category to define. After much discussion, though, we came to a close vote and we came up with a decision. The first creature inductee in our Hall of Fame is the Jersey Devil, a fellow American for centuries possibly, who has filled other Americans with terror and a sense of mystery. Two things much needed in this age of instant information and instant
5: judgment. Well, there you have it, the 2015 SISG Hall of Fame inductees.
3: Congratulations to all the winners. So, what do you think about our nominees? Do you have any strong opinions? Do you have any suggestions? You can find us on Facebook by searching for strange, interesting, and slightly gamey. And let us know what you think.
6: Along the countryside at precisely twelve o'clock, the spooks began to rise. Swing and and twelve ticks, Swingin' and and hot flicks with the medium entrance, how the horns begin to dance. Oh wah 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 at sea as five minutes. Well, we've come to the end of our podcast,
3: but not the end of our party. Right, everybody? But before we go, Frank's got a little tidbit for us, so share with us.
4: Yeah, before there was Harry Potter and Hogwarts, there was Miss Cackle's Academy for Witches and Mildred Hubble, the Worst Witch. It was a book series that started in 1974, and it was both written and illustrated by Jill Murphy. In 1986, they made a British TV movie out of it, and it was with Verusa Balk. She was the worst witch. And it aired on HBO in the US first, but then later on, it was on the Disney Channel about every Halloween until the late 90s. For my money, the best part, though, of this telemovie is when Tim Curry came in as Big Daddy Wiz, singing anything can happen on halloween and that's what we're going to go out on so this is uncle frank this is jimmy sweets
3: this is greg
4: wishing you all a great halloween and a terrifying evening see you next month don't get cancer
1: it's him yes i can see him
13: landing It's great to be here with you young witches on this fabulous night Remember girls show the world let them know it's halloween Head it I wouldn't change places with anyone to We'll carve pumpkin faces And watch the witches flight Every human heart will shudder Every soul will shake with fear Tonight the creepiest Tonight the scariest Night, the most wonderful night uh, oh Turn into a cat there may be a toad in your bass guitar Or your sister could turn into a bat Christmas time brings the snow Summer time brings the sun But on Halloween your blood begins to run (laughs) Summer's mood is going down Than a video Gremlins gonna mess up Every cassette From London to Idaho April 1st Can be fun New Year's Eve Is a bore But on Halloween Your flesh begins to grow Oh, I'm losing control could become a sardine Your dentist could turn into a queen Has anybody seen my tambourine? I may start playing big in the beginning The craziest night you've ever seen, this hair